Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Heidi ho everybody, how are we doing today? I am feeling just dandy on this Sunday morning. I've got a fun day ahead and I have also just been working this little tushy off on a million different podcast related things for you all lately. So before I get into today's episode, which I am very excited about, I'm going to get into some of that stuff. So as I've been mentioning for the past few weeks, months or so, my show that I've been working on with India entitled Still Learning will be coming out this coming Friday, like within days. I can't believe it. We are dealing with a bit of a question mark with the release of the rest of the episodes, but I am hoping that we can continue to release them weekly for you all. But there is some, I don't know, business stuff, I guess, that could potentially be in the way. We'll see. But I am just so excited for you all to hear this first episode that she does with a woman named Diane Ben Scotter, who is so amazing. If you're interested in her book, it's called Shoes of a Servant. And Diane was a member of the Moonies cult, which is also known as the Unification Church in the 70s. And she was in there for about five years. She was deprogrammed out of it and eventually became a deprogrammer. And she spent the rest of her life working on getting the public to understand psychological manipulation, but also helping individuals get out of high control groups, whether that be a cult. Um, she helped India get out of Nexium and helped, you know, deprogram her, or whether it be an extremist group. Like she's worked with people who were in Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and QAnon. I mean, it's really, really a fantastic interview. It's very insightful. It's educational. It's heartfelt. I've listened to it probably 10 times now editing and working on it in different ways. And it's just, oh, it's so, so good. I'm so excited to finally bring these little babies into the world with her for all of you because they are just I'm truly truly proud of everything that we've been doing and on top of that I am working on the Patreon book club episode right now where I'm going to cover Simone de Beauvoir before I cover her book The Second Sex and I do want to make note because she is a bit of a controversial figure because there were some allegations of sexual assault that had been held against Simone in her lifetime and so I do just want to make it known that this isn't going to be a feminist faves per se but looking at her life as a whole and how it reflects in the book that we're going to be covering so I did want to let all of you know that I did make it an option on Instagram for you all to reach out to me and say, you know, never mind, we don't want to cover this book anymore. We'd rather do The Feminine Mystique. Not that Betty Friedan isn't problematic as well, but I don't think there were allegations set against her. But anyway, so I am working on The Second Sex slash Simone's story. I am waiting for the book to get in the mail because the best deal I could get on it was from a like thrift book website. So it's taking a little bit longer than anticipated to get to my home. But as soon as I get it here, I'm going to devour it and maybe record as I go read along. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm going to do my best to get those Patreon episodes up for you as soon as humanly possible, especially with all the other stuff I have going on. And lastly, I've been working on some fun handmade merch that's going to be available very, very shortly, probably just like on an Instagram store or something like that. I don't have it all worked out yet about where I want to sell these, but I've been making Angry Neighborhood Feminist themed crocheted tote bags in different sizes and different colors and things like that. And I want them to be available to all of you. So that's going to go up pretty shortly. I just finished 
crocheting all of them but I really do want to see if I can get like a lining in there or something so they're a little bit stronger and more durable and things like that but yeah so you know all around just working hard these days but having so much fun feeling incredibly blessed loving every single one of you if you want to join Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can join the book club for $5 a month. And then there's also a $7 feminist faves level where you can be part of the book club, but also get these episodes ad-free, get them a little bit early, get a few bonus shenanigans every now and again, you know, whatever you really want. And please let me know what you want to see and hear on Patreon. I want to give you the listener, what you want as you are financially supporting the show. It's all about you. You know what I'm saying? And lastly, don't forget to check out Still Learning with India Oxenberg coming out August 18th. Oh, okay. Now that I've yammered on for a little bit, let's get into today's episode. So recently I was reading a little bit about the suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst when I was with a friend of mine who has one of those books of different female leaders that you can crochet and make little dolls and she's so good at them. I love the little dolls that she makes but one of them I was like who is this and it was Emmeline Pankhurst and I'm like you know I know the name but I don't really know anything about her. And I think that's because she is a British suffragette. And I feel like a lot of the show has focused on the American history. Sorry about it, but I'm an American. Maybe I'm a little self-centered. But uh, I was very intrigued by her story. And then I was you know, doing my, you know, initial research on Emmeline and I went over to YouTube to see if there was any little documentaries that I could watch on her. And there was one from a YouTube channel that was called Absolute History. And it was all about the Pankhurst family. It was about Emmeline and particularly two of her daughters, Christabel and Sylvia, who also became part of the suffrage movement and worked really hard with their mother. So I decided that instead of just covering Emmeline, I want to cover her story, but then also discuss what her relationship with her daughters were like, what they did to help further the right to vote and all of these things. And it's a really, really fascinating story. I think that it definitely mirrors a lot of the suffrage movement that happened in the United States in a lot of ways. But I got to say, the Brits were a hell of a lot more radical than the Americans were. These are incredibly militant suffragettes who weren't willing to take no for an answer. So let's start talking about the Pankhurst women. Emmeline was a young girl when she first became involved in women's suffrage, thanks to her parents who were both incredibly progressive at the time. Her dad was named Robert, and he was a self-made man working his way from errand boy to manufacturer from a humble home in Manchester, England, who had a history of political activity. And as a musical theater lover who particularly loves the show Hair, I can't read about Manchester and not want to go, Manchester, England, England. <laughs> oh, gosh. By the way, I was in that show. Maybe I'll post a clip of it someday, but I played the character Chrissy and sang a song called Frank Mills. It's a cute one. Look it up. And her dad, Robert's mother, was actually also very politically engaged as she worked with the Anti-Corn Law League. And I was like, corn laws? Do tell me more. I have no idea what this is. So you know I had to open up another tab and go on a little side Goog research session here. And corn laws were tariffs and other trade restrictions on imported food and corn enforced in the UK from 1815 till 1846. And in this context, the word corn in British English denoted all cereal grains such as wheat, oats, and barley. So I guess it wasn't just actual corn and corn kernels. Corn laws were designed to keep corn prices high to favor domestic producers and blocked the import of cheap corn. So the Anti-Corn League was a movement in Great Britain aimed to abolish these laws since they resulted in high prices for bread at a time when factory owners were trying to cut wages. So yes, even Emmeline's grandma was a bit of a rebellious badass, if I do say so myself. 
And her grandfather was actually forced to enlist in the Royal Navy and was present at the Peterloo Massacre, which was won by the radicals, which really gave him, you know, that sort of radical spirit, I guess. I don't know. I didn't go far into the grandfather. So, of course, when Robert grew up, he began working in politics, and he served for several years on the Salford Town Council and was also extremely enthusiastic about supporting theater organizations. Oh, such a theatrical beginning to this episode. He was an actor himself and even played the lead in several Shakespeare plays. How cute is that? We love that for you, Robert. Her parents were also abolitionists. Robert welcomed American abolitionist Henry Ward Beecher when he visited Manchester, which for the family was incredibly exciting, especially for little Emmeline because Emmeline's mother, Sophia, would often read the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was written by Henry's sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, as a bedtime story. So it was like a celebrity coming into the house. And apparently this book is said to have had a profound effect on the attitudes towards slavery in the United States and also on the people who had been enslaved. And I read somewhere that it helped lay the groundwork for the Civil War. So that book has been added to my reading list. Sources claim that Emmeline, who was born Emmeline Goulden, was able to read by the age of three, which is unbelievable. But even though her parents were incredibly progressive in so many ways, they still didn't believe that their daughter deserved the same type of education that their sons did, which is very, very strange. Her parents believed that their daughters only had to learn the art of, quote, making home attractive and other skills desired by future husbands. Oh, it's just so disappointing. They expected their daughters to marry young and avoid work while they deliberated painstakingly over their son's futures because, of course. And this just drives me nuts because I feel like this exact story comes up again and again and again in any sort of biography episode that I do. And that is, you know, one night Emmeline's dad is like leaning in the doorway of her bedroom and he thinks she's sleeping and he says, what a pity she wasn't born a lad. It's like, come on, it doesn't matter the gender or the sex of your child. Like if they are smart and ambitious and want to do things, especially if you're a fairly progressive person, why don't you want your kids to have the best life possible no matter who they are, or at least like have the interests that they want, makes no sense to me. And now if I were young Emmeline and I were treated this way by my parents, I would probably be like, you know what, they're right. I'm useless. I'm just going to give in, marry young, and I'm going to submit. And then I would probably wait 10 years, rebel, and go on a murderous rampage. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I would never do that. But no, Emmeline was empowered by this. She's one of those people where they're like, I bet you can't do it. And she's like, watch me. And she was just incredibly precocious. So she would read her mother's copies of the Women's Suffrage Journal, which again, I'm like, Sophia, you're reading about women's rights that you're not going to let your daughter explore these things like I don't understand but the editor of the women's suffrage journal was a woman named Lydia Becker and Emmeline became obsessed with Lydia like big big fan of Lydia's and so when she was 14 years old one day Emmeline came home from school and she found her mother preparing herself for a meeting about women's voting rights And when her mom mentioned that Lydia Becker would be there, of course, Emmeline begins begging to let her mother bring her along, and her mother agreed. Later, Emmeline wrote, I left the meeting a conscious and confirmed suffragist. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. A little bit about Lydia Becker. She formed the National Society for Women's Suffrage in 1867, which was the first national group in the UK to campaign for a woman's right to vote. The following year, the teenage Emmeline traveled to Paris to attend École Normale de Nuilly. You all know how bad I am at French stuff. A school which provided its female students with classes in chemistry and bookkeeping, as well as the more traditional feminine arts of embroidery and so on. So, you know, a little bit of a give and a take. At school, she had a roommate named Noemi, who was the daughter of a man named Victor Henry Rochefort, who was a staunch supporter of the Paris Commune and was imprisoned in New Caledonia for his support. So an incredibly radical man. And the two really bonded over the fact that both of their parents were such radicals at the time, and they would remain friends for a long time. It was actually Noemi who would introduce Emmeline to her future husband after she herself married a Swiss painter. Noelle introduced Emmeline to Richard Pankhurst, a French barrister who advocated for women's suffrage, in the fall of 1878, when she was 20 years old. On top of his devotion to the suffrage movement, Richard was interested in other causes as well, including freedom of speech and education reform. I have to mention there was quite an age gap between these lovebirds. While Emmeline was 20 years old, Richard was 44. 24 years her senior. I personally don't recommend it, but here we go. Interestingly, though, Richard had actually never married before. He had devoted himself to this bachelor lifestyle so that he could better serve the public. That is until he met his match. And they fell hard and fast for each other. They were just two smitten kittens. Emmeline's mom was like, girl, pump the brakes a little bit. You're moving a little too fast. You're throwing yourself at this man. You have to be a little bit more aloof. But Emmeline was like, screw it, mom. Like, I know what I want, and I want Richard. And I love this. She wasn't going to behave the way that women were expected to and be demure and wait for him to come to her. In fact, there was a time where they weren't seeing as much of each other because Richard's mother passed away and Emmeline still really made it a point to be in his life. And I don't think that that was expected of women at the time to really make it known to the man in their life that they also really, really wanted and loved them. And she really wanted to support whatever Richard wanted in life. She was not deterred by the fact that he hadn't wanted to get married. And so she said, like, look, we can just, you know, be together and you can remain, you can maintain this bachelor status for, you know, your public service. But Richard actually said, no, I think we should actually get married because he had had experiences with friends and their partners before they got married where the women didn't have as many rights as an unwed woman. And so he really wanted that for Emmeline. So he kind of said, you know, if you're OK with it, I would really like to marry you. Oh, it's so sweet. And we just love a feminist man, don't we? They got married at St. Luke's Church in Pendleton on December 18, 1879. And though Emmeline would go on to have five children in the span of 10 years, she and Richard both believed that she shouldn't be this household machine. She did not become a stay-at-home mother. She was a working mom before the term was even thought of as a concept. 
She hired people to be able to help take care of her children while she devoted her days to her political activities, much like women do today. Their first child, Christabel, was born on September 22nd, 1880, almost exactly nine months after the wedding. They wasted no time. Christabel was named after the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge with the name as the title. Part of the poem reads, The lovely lady Christabel, whom her father loves so well, which I think is really, really sweet. Their second daughter, Estelle Sylvia, whom they called Sylvia, was born in 1882. Then their son, Henry Francis Robert, whom they called Frank, was born in 1884. Soon after the birth of Frank, Richard left the Liberal Party as his views had grown more radical than his group members. And this is interesting because it's really the Liberal Party that is fighting a lot against women's suffrage, and it doesn't really sound like that would be the case. Richard's views had become more socialist, and he argued a case in court against several wealthy businessmen, like Eat the Rich in the 1800s. I love it. Along with his change in ideals, I guess his mood and attitude also became a little bit more intense. He was a little bit less fun to be around. They welcomed another daughter in 1885 named Adela, and they moved to London the following year. There, Richard ran unsuccessfully for election as a member of Parliament. Emmeline really thought that her husband would make a great member of Parliament. He would make a lot of good change, but, you know, I think he was just a little bit too radical at the time. Meanwhile, Emmeline opened up a small fabric shop with her sister Mary Jane called Emerson and Company. As parents, Richard and Emmeline encouraged their kids to dream about more than who they wanted to marry, but who they wanted to be when they grew up. They also felt that nurturing their children's creativity was very important. They actually didn't have their kids attend regular school until they were teenagers because they were worried about the regular school system squashing their creativity. They were a super tight family, and they really seemed to listen well to each other and really encouraged each other as well. However, there is some favoritism among the family. It was pretty clear that Christabel, the firstborn, was definitely Emmeline's favorite, which just ugh, breaks my heart. Sylvia, the second child, noted in 1931 that Christabel was, quote, our mother's favorite. We all knew it, and I, for one, never resented the fact. I don't believe you, Sylvia, especially because of the way these two women are described, or young girls, I guess, at this time are described. Christabel was always very outgoing and talkative. She was beautiful. Like, I mean, there's just really no doubt about that. And I think that that goes to show you that when you're given enough love and affection, you build up that self-confidence. And Sylvia, on the other hand, was a little bit more subdued. She worried about what people thought of her. And that's really reflected in the way that she's treated by her family, in my opinion. A biographer once wrote of Christabel, in childhood as well as adulthood, she was beautiful, intelligent, graceful, confident, charming, and charismatic. In that documentary that I watched on YouTube, they described Christabel as arguably more talented than Sylvia. Jesus, would everyone lay off of Sylvia? She becomes my favorite of the Pankhurst women, by the way. Both of these girls, though, were super ambitious. In their teenage years, once more political activity began happening around the house, they started their own newsletter where they would write about the different political meetings and the people that came through the Pankhurst home, and they were really excited by all of the activity going on around them. In 1888, the National Society for Women's Suffrage was disbanded after members began to disagree on the organization's affiliated political parties. This enraged Emmeline's hero, Lydia Becker, along with fellow suffragist Millicent Fawcett, who stormed out of the meeting when it was discussed. They decided to create an alternative organization, one that committed to the old way of doing things. They named it the Great College Street Society after the location of its headquarters. But Emmeline no longer agreed with Lydia and her idea to stick to the old way of doing things. Emmeline aligned more with the New Rules Group, which became known as the Parliament Street Society, or PSS. 
Some of the PSS members, including Emmeline, believed that advocating for single women and widows to receive the right to vote was a practical step to full suffrage, since the belief of many at the time was that married women didn't need to vote because their husbands voted for them. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I do kind of understand the way that they're thinking because... At that time, I think, you know, if you were a married woman, you were usually better off financially. You might have been higher status. And I think that what they really wanted to do was focus on the women that were being left behind and weren't being fought for already. And those were the women that were in the lower classes, the women that were not married, the women who had become widows. You know, those were the people that I think that Emmeline and this PSS group really thought that they should lift up and that once they got the right to vote, then it would be a clear follow-up for the, the women who are married. But after a while, even PSS seemed to be a little bit hesitant about this plan, but Emmeline and Richard still very much believed in it. So they went off on their own and started their own group, which was dedicated to the right to vote for all women, married and unmarried. They called it the Women's Franchise League, or WFL, and their first meeting was held on July 25th, 1889. Now, I do want to go back to 1888 for just a moment because there was some unfortunate tragedy that occurred in the Pankhurst home, and I think that it is important to note Emmeline's son, Frank, developed diphtheria, and this poor boy who was only four years old passed away in September. In this really messed with both Richard and Emmeline. Obviously, this was just absolutely devastating. And Richard had this belief that there was something wrong with the poor conditions of where they were living that got Frank sick and how he ended up with that disease, though I guess they had discovered that it was due to a faulty drainage system in the back of the family home. But either way, Richard was very much dedicated to the fact that, you know, we got to get out of this neighborhood. So he moved the family to a more affluent middle class area. And shortly after Frank passed away, Emmeline got pregnant again. And through her grief, she grew this belief that this new baby was her son, Frank, returning to her. And it's just, oh, the thought of that just absolutely breaks my heart. And this new little baby, who was a boy, was born on July 7th, 1889. And they named him after their deceased son, Henry Francis. And I just feel like for all involved, this was just a really bad decision. I mean, maybe this makes them happy because they feel like their family is whole again, but I don't know. I just, I feel like they needed a lot of therapy and a lot of help. I feel like especially for this new Henry Francis, I feel like I would have a severe identity crisis if I was named after a deceased sibling. I don't know. This just seems so complicated and devastating. I mean, for the siblings, I feel like it would be so tough. But you know what? Everyone handles grief in a different way. I'm not judging them. This just seems heartbreaking. Now that the Pankhurst lived in this new, more affluent area called Russell Square, they kind of became this hub for political intellects and activists, including socialists, protesters, anarchists, suffragists, free thinkers, radicals, and humanitarians of all schools. So this was when the Pankhurst girls started getting really excited about the different activity going on in their homes. And Emmeline really wanted to make this house something beautiful you know she she did (laughs) she did have a bit of a domestic side to her you know she got all of these very luxurious home furnishings from Asia and just spent tons of time making sure that her home looked just perfect and her daughter Sylvia once recalled that quote beauty and appropriateness in her dress and household appointments seemed to her at all times an indispensable setting to public work Okay, now let's get back to 1889 and talk more about the Women's Franchise League. Early members of the WFL were some real heavy hitters, including Josephine Butler, who was the leader of the Ladies' National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, 
long name. <gasps> Just kidding. <laughs> and she was a good friend of the Pankhurst, as well as Elizabeth Clark, Wollstenholm Elmy, and Harriet Eaton Stanton Blatch. And you heard Stanton in there because she is the daughter of American suffragette Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Obviously, the WFL was considered incredibly radical, but that was mainly because in addition to supporting women's suffrage, they also aligned themselves with other socialist issues and other rights for women, such as divorce and inheritance. The more conservative group, the PSS, spoke openly against what they called the extreme left group. Does that sound familiar? In response, the WFL started referring to the PSS as the Spinster Suffrage Party. You know how much I love a little snark and pettiness. The WFL also elaborated, insisting that a wider assault on social inequality was needed for the suffrage movement to be truly successful. Unfortunately, the group got a little hot for some of its members, though, including Stanton Jr., surprise, surprise, and Pankhurst's old friend Elmy, who actually resigned. But hey, if you can't handle the heat, get the fuck out of the kitchen. Unfortunately, it was hard to keep the group going since so many feared that their radical socialist response would not work after all. So the WFL fell apart one year into its conception in 1890. And all the while, Emmeline was still running that little fabric shop with her sister, but that wasn't really reaching the financial success that they had hoped for. With the family's finances dwindling, Richard began traveling to Northwest England regularly where he had most of his clients. Eventually, the fabric store closed shop in 1893 and the Pankhurst moved back to Manchester. It was then that they enrolled their daughters in Manchester Girls High School, which had a large student population and an incredibly regimented schedule that the Pankhurst girls were not used to since, like I said, they hadn't had any form of formal education, I guess you could say, up until this point. So suddenly being thrust into school was very strange. I don't want to go too off topic, but... I had a lot of friends who were homeschooled growing up for the purpose of skating, and I was homeschooled for like a year, not even a full year, I don't think of school, but I had a friend who had been homeschooled since she was probably in like third or fourth grade, like really, really young, and she went back to school as like a freshman or sophomore in high school, and it was a huge culture shock for her. Like it was crazy so I can't imagine what these kids are going through where they you know they came from this like loving creative very adult life and then being thrown into regular high school with a bunch of other girls I I'm sure it was really overwhelming I'm also imagining that they had an exact replica of that scene from Mean Girls when Katie gets up and asks to go to the bathroom and the teacher doesn't let her and she's like, what? Why can't I just go to the bathroom? I never understood that about school, especially because I have to pee constantly. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. But this move actually seemed to be a really good fit for Emmeline. And maybe that's because they moved back to an area where there was less affluent people living there. So they wanted to be able to support their community rather than trying to get maybe higher class people to care about the impoverished. I don't know. Just a thought. But this was when Emmeline really started to come into her own and be recognized and respected by her community as an activist and as a incredibly intelligent woman 
One biographer writes of this time as her emergence from Richard's shadow. She joined the WLF, different than the WFL, which stands for Women's Liberal Federation, but soon found the group too moderate for her liking, of course. Looking for a new group to belong, she met Keir Hartle, a sociologist from Scotland who was elected parliament in 1891 and helped create the Independent Labour Party. Emmeline was super psyched about the ILP and what they were doing and applied to become a member. Her daughter Christabel once wrote her perspective in these days saying, In this movement she hoped there might be the means of righting every political and social wrong. However, her local chapter refused her due to her sex, but Emmeline fought to eventually join the ILP internationally. Take it straight to the top. Once she joined, she took up the job of distributing food to the impoverished through the Committee for the Relief of the Unemployed. In 1894, she was elected to the position of Poor Law Guardian. In this work, she saw the appalling conditions of the workhouses in Charleston-on-Medlock firsthand. She once wrote, The first time I went to this place, I was horrified to see little girls, seven and eight years old, on their knees scrubbing the cold stones of the long corridors. Bronchitis was epidemic among them most of the time. I found that there were pregnant women in the workhouse, scrubbing floors, doing the hardest kind of work almost until their babies came into the world. Of course, the babies were very badly protected. These poor, unprotected mothers and their babies, I am sure, were potent factors in my education as a militant. To be able to do more to change the conditions, she established herself as the voice of reform on the Board of Guardians. And then more hard times for the Pankhurst family as around 1897, Emmeline's husband Richard's health began to deteriorate. He was experiencing severe stomach pains and had developed a gastric ulcer. All the while, he and Emmeline were in a legal fight when she and two men violated a court order against ILP meetings where they refused to pay fines and the two men were sent to prison. Luckily, Emmeline was spared, but most likely because the magistrate feared how it would look to imprison a woman who was so well-respected in the community. However, when a reporter asked Emmeline if she was prepared to spend time in prison, she said, Oh, yes, quite. It wouldn't be so very dreadful, you know, and it would be a very valuable experience. Okay. But still, naturally, all of this put a lot of stress on Richard. They had four kids. His wife couldn't go to prison. Once Emmeline was out of the woods, they moved for a time to the countryside, hoping the air would help cure Richard's condition. I really wish doctors would still prescribe this. This sounds so relaxing and wonderful. And for a time, it did seem that Richard was improving. So they moved back to Manchester for a bit. But come summer of 1898, Richard suffered a relapse. When this happened, Emmeline was with her eldest daughter Christabel visiting a friend in Switzerland, and she received a telegram from Richard saying, I am not well. Please come home, my love. Emmeline left her daughter with her friend and traveled back to England. However, on July 5th, 1898, on the train from London to Manchester, so close to being home, she noticed a newspaper announcing the death of Richard Pankhurst. Can you imagine... The death of her husband not only sent her into horrific grief, but it also sent her family into crazy debt, and she was now a single mother. The Pankhurst family downsized their home, and Emmeline left her position on the Board of Guardians. Instead, she took a paying position as Registrar of Birth and Deaths in Charlton. And again, this was a, a pretty good fit for her, because again, she was still able to help the people in the community that she wanted to work with the most. And it really gave her even more insight on the plight of women in this region. She wrote in her autobiography, They used to tell me their stories, dreadful stories, some of them, and all of them pathetic with that patient and uncomplaining pathos of poverty. She began to see a vast difference between the treatment of poor men and poor women, for example, in relation to illegitimacy or bastardry. This reinforced in her the idea that women needed the right to vote in order to improve their conditions. She was elected to the Manchester School Board in 1900, and there she saw even more examples of women suffering unequal treatment and limited opportunities. She also reopened her fabric store with her sister for extra money. I don't know how she does it all. It was also around this time that Emmeline's children began getting more and more involved in politics as well. 
at first, Christabel really liked the more social aspect of being part of the movement and made a lot of really good friends. But two of the friends that she made as a teenager were Esther Roper and Eva for Booth, who were both suffrage activists. Esther had actually taken over the Manchester National Society for Women's Suffrage from Emmeline's former idol, Lydia Becker, and she's credited with re-energizing the organization and broadening the scope for the votes of women to all women, not just those in the middle class. Esther met Eva Gore Booth in 1896 in Italy, and the two quickly fell in love and they moved in together in Esther's home in Manchester. And the three girls were really, really close. And I think that they inspired Christabel to really care about women's rights as well. It was no longer just her mom's thing or whatever, which might be seen as lame because who thinks what their parents do is cool. But now her friends are doing it. So she's like, awesome. I'm totally on board. She also began studying law, which furthered her specific interest in women's rights. As for Sylvia, she was a very well-respected local artist and received a scholarship to the Manchester School of Art and would go on to further studies in Florence and Venice, Italy. While the two eldest seemed to have clear paths as to where they wanted to go in their lives, it was a little bit different for Adela and Harry. Adela was sent to boarding school where she was quickly isolated from her classmates after contracting head lice, and Harry had vision problems and suffered with the measles while attending school. So... Not all of the Pankhurst children did so well once they were sent to school. But I know that Adela was a bit interested in women's suffrage and the movement as well. I know that she was arrested a few times later on in this story. But at this point, maybe she's too young. I don't know. By 1903, Emmeline was tired of asking Parliament nicely for the vote. There had been suffrage bills in 1870, 1886, and in 1897, but all of them were defeated. She turned her back on the Independent Labor Party when they turned their backs on the suffrage cause. Christabel and Emmeline and eight other women got together and created the Women's Social and Political Union, or the WSPU, in October of 1903, and this would probably be the Pankhurst women's greatest accomplishment. The WSPU began on a shoestring budget with no rules or constitution. It was very, very democratic. The group was to be for women only, and it was to campaign for deeds, not words, which was their slogan. They wanted action. The group began by using nonviolent tactics in addition to giving speeches and gathering petition signatures. They organized rallies, created a newsletter called Votes for Women, and created a women's parliament within the group. And take action they did. Christabel did something very unladylike at the time when she, along with Anna Kenny, a fellow group member, interrupted a political meeting by asking the question, will the liberal government, if voted in, give votes to women? At first, the question had been written on a piece of paper, and one by one, it was handed up to the speaker. But he didn't answer the question. So... They shouted, interrupting this important men's political hearing. How very dare they? (laughs) Of course, pandemonium ensued and their actions were described as militancy. All of you may know the very infamous photo of two women carrying a banner that says votes for women. Well, those two young ladies are Christabel Pankhurst and Anna Kenny on this very day. That photo was taken when they interrupted the meeting. And I just got to say, it's wild to me that this was considered a militant act. Women simply asking to be listened to and then responded to was a militant act. I found an article from the time and it says, If the evidence is to be believed, the defendant's behavior was such as one was accustomed to attribute to women from the slums. Fuck you. It was regrettable that such a charge should be brought against persons who ought, at least, to be able to control themselves. I would love to see what they wrote if another man interrupted this meeting, but whatever. In recent years, a letter written by Anna Kenny was found that she had written to her sister when she was informing her that she had been released from prison. And in spite of the fact that she had been arrested and locked up, Anna actually seemed to be in really good spirits. She wrote how over 100 people were waiting for her when she got out of prison and that she had received a lovely bouquet of flowers from the Oldham Socialists. How wonderful for her. 
She also wrote to her sister about how more than 2,000 people had attended a protest on her and Christabel's behalf the night before and wrote, Manchester is alive, I can assure you. A year later, Emmeline's other daughters, Adela and Sylvia, were also arrested during a protest outside of Parliament. Emmeline herself was arrested for the first time in 1908 when she tried to enter Parliament to speak with Prime Minister Asquith. She was charged with obstruction of justice and served six weeks in prison. In 1909, she struck a police officer twice in the face to ensure she would be arrested again. Holy shit. Emmeline would be arrested a total of seven times before women's suffrage was approved. As the papers began writing more and more about the WSPU, they began to realize that the press is pretty powerful. And even though the press talked about them all the time, it wasn't necessarily super favorable. Since women were seen as lesser than and even objects by many, a lot of the appearances of the suffragists in the newspapers were often gross caricatures. They were described as unsexed, unwomanly, and as wanting to become like men. They were the objects of ridicule. And I'm sorry, I'm so tired of the fact that that is still something that's mentioned today that feminists just want to be men or women who are feminists just want to be treated like men it doesn't make any sense to me equality doesn't mean being treated like you are a boy it just means that you want to exist in the world as you are and still be treated equally I don't know people just be dumb it was also around this time that the Daily Mail started using the word suffragette to refer to the women in the suffrage movement. Calling them suffragettes was supposed to make fun of them and make them sound little and without power. It also sounded quite French, and Emmeline, who liked French things, kind of liked this new nickname for them as well, so she decided to own it. I love when people change the meaning of hurtful words, like, yes, take that power back. There starts to be some issues that pop up in 1907 when the WSPU begins to split over the issue of leadership of Emmeline and Christabel. So originally it was all very democratic. You know, people could just kind of do what they wanted, but it was all underneath this one group. But then as time went on, Emmeline and Christabel, I think, wanted to take more and more control over, you know, the activities of the group and what these women did and their beliefs and all of that kind of stuff. But much of the group believed that it should remain a more democratic way of making decisions. The group of WSPU women that were against the leadership of the Pankhursts were led by Teresa Billington Grieg, who called for a more democratic involvement in the group. However, Emmeline and Christabel felt that their charismatic leadership was necessary to lead the women's movement. They saw themselves as the generals of this war, and they just couldn't come to an understanding. To make things even more awkward, Emmeline's daughter Sylvia agreed with Teresa and her group, and she tried to persuade her mother and sister into changing the rules in their constitution about decision-making in the group. Emmeline and Christabel were not happy about this, and while Sylvia remained in the group, she was definitely sidelined. Emmeline also then created a smaller committee with select members, probably just full of yes people, which infuriated the other members of the WSPU even more, leading to several members quitting and creating their own organization, the Women's Freedom League. In 1908, the Liberal Party elected Herbert Henry Asquith as their leader, who was against women's suffrage. He's like the true villain of this story, I guess, the dinosaur that slows down the rate of change. He stopped the vote for women from happening multiple times. He felt that the suffragettes didn't have adequate support from their fellow countrymen and women, and that's why he wasn't in favor of it. So, the group decided that they wanted to show him that women truly wanted the vote if he were to consider it. So, they organized a huge campaign to get as many people as possible to London on June 21st, 1908. They drew messages in chalk on the sidewalks, had suffragettes shout out the message at the end of films at the theaters, and handed out leaflets in multiple towns. On that day, more than 42,000 women marched to Hyde Park, and they attracted about half a million people as they marched toward Parliament. These people came from all over the country to be there, both men and women, marching together for the cause of women. 
But even this didn't sway Asquith and the rest. This then prompted the WSPU to organize a protest outside of Parliament. It began with women giving speeches for women's suffrage, but soon there was an incredibly violent response. They were attacked by the police, they were sexually assaulted, and all of this was in view of Parliament, who was looking down, laughing at them. Police officers grabbed several of the speakers and pushed them into a crowd of opponents who had gathered, which is just so dangerous. Angered by this, Edith New and Mary Lee, both WSPU members, went to 10 Downing Street, where the Prime Minister lived, and began hurling rocks at his home. This was a successful message getting across, and this gave them the idea to start attacking more property, as it would protect their bodies and still get their message across. They didn't want to be assaulted ever again. Of course, because of this, more and more and more and more women were being imprisoned on the daily, and they decided to implore a new kind of tactic while they were in prison, and that is the hunger strike. On June 24, 1909, Marion Wallace Dunlop, who is a fierce suffragette, was arrested for militancy after writing an excerpt from the Bill of Rights on a wall in the House of Commons. Marion was angry about the treatment that the prisoners received in jail, so she went on a hunger strike. Soon, 14 other women who were in jail, who had been arrested for smashing windows, decided to join her. The WSPU soon became known in the press for their prolonged hunger strikes to protest their incarceration. This wasn't a strike for women's right to vote. This was simply a strike demanding for fairer treatment while they were imprisoned. Instead of being categorized as political prisoners, which they felt they were, they were categorized as second or third division prisoners, which meant that their actions were not acknowledged as being politically motivated and they received different treatment. In response to the hunger strikes, eventually prison authorities would force-feed these women. They, of course, were worried about the fact that these women could potentially die on the premises, but they still were not willing to give them what they wanted. So instead, they decided to use this method of actual torture. And the thing that's so fucked up is that it was sanctioned by the Liberal Party. This sounds so excruciating since these women did not consent to being tube fed. I am very, very lucky that in my time with an eating disorder, I was never tube fed, but I've had a lot of friends who were, and it's not exactly like they gave their full consent, like, yeah, please shove a tube down my throat or whatever, but I think it was one of those things where they understood and could kind of give the power over to the doctor in that sense but this was like these women were being held down and tubes are being forcibly shoved down their throats and oh it's just it just sounds so so terrible not everyone in the fight for women's vote was so pleased with the WSPU's militant tactics some other feminists thought they were too focused on publicity stunts and not enough on the actual issue But I would disagree, personally, and say that this was a brilliant way of getting the message out and keeping it in the minds of the public. Even if they disagreed with what the women were doing, they had to take notice. And it's not like they were like, oh yeah, we're definitely going to get in the press if we get forcibly fed. Like, I don't think that all of this was in the minds of these women. And the fact that other party members or other people that support the same cause are kind of putting them down is really frustrating to me. And all the while, Parliament is really just dangling the idea of women's suffrage in their faces. They would tell them that, you know, they're going to look into it and they're considering it. So the militant acts would subside for a while, but then deadlines would be pushed or wouldn't be met. So then more action would start up again. And it was just this really, really vicious cycle. In 1913, the Prisoner's Temporary Discharge for Health Act, nicknamed the Cat and Mouse Act, was introduced. So essentially what that means is that prisoners who were engaged in hunger strikes would be released as soon as the strike began to affect their health so they could go out and recuperate. And then once they were feeling better, law enforcement would run back out, rearrest them and put them back in jail. As you might imagine, the effectiveness of this was 
not very great as it was very, very hard to recapture these suffragettes after they were released. And that's because these women were no dummies. As soon as one of them got out, the rest of the group would protect them. They would put them in hiding. They would figure out a way to kind of keep them under wraps so they wouldn't be rearrested and evade the authorities. Christabel would also receive support when she was wanted for arrest following a raid she participated in. She actually fled to Paris and remained there from 1913 to 1914, assisting the WSPU from afar. However, some of the members would travel to Paris in disguise to see her, and she also continued to write for the WSPU newspaper. With Christabel being away, Sylvia hoped that her mother would put her in charge, but that's not what happened. In June of 1913, there would be the first fatality among the WSPU. Emily Davison, an incredibly radical activist who had been in and out of prison numerous times, had been force-fed a recorded 49 times. She once even barricaded herself in her cell to ward off the authorities that were there to tube-feed her. On June 4th, she went to the Derby, where she positioned herself at the final corner before the finish line. As King George V's horse came around, Emily, it seems, tried to attach a few suffragette flags to it. But while attempting to do so, she was trampled by the horse. This horse would have been traveling at about 35 miles an hour, and she immediately went unconscious. She was taken to the hospital for treatment, but never again regained consciousness and died on June 8, 1913. She died due to a fracture at the base of her skull, and she was only 40 years old. Among her personal effects, two suffragette flags were found. What's terrible is that while Emily was slowly dying in the hospital, people on the outside were sending her hate mail. Although, the suffragettes, when she died, began to view Emily as a martyr for their cause. This is an incredible story, and it really affects this group a lot, and you can be sure to expect an Emily Davison episode very soon. There was quite a noticeable shift in the Pankhurst family at the onset of World War I. Emmeline began her activism as an incredibly far-left socialist fan, but now she and her daughter Christabel seem to be moving further and further to the right, which is just crazy to me. In the meantime, Sylvia was getting involved in East London with the working class women. She decided to open a WSPU branch there, and it was a good move for many reasons. For one, it would empower the lower class women and help them achieve the right to vote, but it also was located close to Parliament, and they could get large numbers for protests there. However, this decision was not what her mother and sister wanted. Sylvia, after just being released from prison again, was sent to Paris to see Emmeline and Christabel, and according to Sylvia, while a Pomeranian dog laid on her sister's lap, they fired her from the WSPU. In Sylvia's book, The Suffrage Movement, from 1913, she describes the interaction. Christabel turned to me. You have your own ideas. We do not want that. We want all our women to take their instructions and walk in step like an army. Too tired, too ill to argue, as I mentioned, she had just been released from prison. I made no reply. I was oppressed by a sense of tragedy, grieved by their ruthlessness. Her glorification of autocracy seemed to me remote indeed from the struggle we were waging, from the grim fight even now proceeding in these cells. I thought of many others who had been thrust aside for some minor difference." Christabel and Emmeline then ordered Sylvia to remove the word suffragette from the group's name since they believed it was inextricably linked with WSPU. When Sylvia refused, her mother wrote her a furious letter. She wrote, You are unreasonable, always have been, and I fear always will be. I suppose you were made so. Had you chosen a name which we could approve, we could have done much to launch you and advertise your society by name. Now you must take your own way of doing so. I am sorry, but you make your own difficulties by an incapacity to look at situations from other people's point of view as well as your own. Perhaps in time, you will learn the lessons that we all have to learn in life. Jesus. Emmeline also began to worry about her daughter Adela, who was unemployed at the time and unsure of her future. So she sent her to Australia and paid for her relocation. The two never saw each other again. 
It's always so disappointing to see these suffragettes going from having good moral stances in politics, wanting to fight for the little guy, but as time goes on and they gain a sense of power, they abandon their initial beliefs entirely. And that's what seems to be happening with Christabel and Emmeline. Of course, they still had a following, but the group was dwindling and they were really just allowing themselves to be surrounded by yes people all the time. And anyone who went against their policies were expelled. When World War I started, Emmeline and Christabel also became super patriotic, which is weird. They put all of their militant suffrage activities on hold until the fighting in Europe ceased. And this absolutely horrified Sylvia and many others who felt that they had to fix the domestic issues going on at home before they could worry about the war. Sylvia also believed in her socialist perspective that the war was another example of capitalist oligarchs exploiting poor soldiers and workers. Emmeline's other daughter, Adela, was also outspoken against the war. This made Emmeline believe her daughters were, quote, pro-German. Because of this decision to cease their militant activities, a truce was established between the suffragettes and the government, and all of the imprisoned women were released. Christabel now could finally return to London. Also, during the war, we know that this was the first time that women were given a chance to step into more of a male role and to have jobs for the first time and really put a lot into the war effort. And many believe that it was this example that women set in Britain at the time that led to the passing of the Representation of the People Act in February 1918. This gave the vote to women who were over the age of 30 and who owned five pounds worth of land. Now, this is not exactly what Sylvia's group wanted, as it ended up being, and I quote, entitled older women who had won the right to vote, but the majority of the population was still not getting it. On November 11th, 1918, World War I officially ended, and Christabel introduced the Women's Party. This effectively ended the WSPU. This group would only last for about a year, though, and folded in 1919. Christabel had also tried to run for general election in 1918, but lost and was devastated. Her mother was even more saddened by this loss. Sylvia, in the meantime, was inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917 and wanted to start her own similar revolution at home in Britain. She was also officially a communist. She met an Italian anarchist by the name of Silvio, Silvia and Silvio, I'm obsessed, and the two had a son named Richard, named after her father, so sweet, but they had the baby out of wedlock. And if Emmeline was upset with her daughter before, she was beside herself now. She never spoke to Silvia again and never met her grandson. What the fuck is wrong with you? Christabel was also incredibly offended by her sister now. She had moved to California and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church and became a preacher. Total 180 for Christabel. Emmeline's health had been on the decline, and one month before all women would receive suffrage, she passed away on June 14, 1928. The last time Christabel and Sylvia ever saw each other was at their mother's funeral. This story was so incredibly fascinating to me for a number of reasons. And the first thing that I want to discuss is the family dynamics in this group. Because, man, for generations, this family was almost just like building and building and building this more progressive stance. They were all so smart. They knew how to lead. But, you know, it's just another one of those stories that we see where once... These people are given a little bit of power and influence how easily they can be swayed away from their initial goal. And the fact that this family was so close and worked together and believed in each other and like these two sisters worked together since they were teenagers. And at the end of the story, it's like they all just separated. I know that Sylvia would go on to live until the 1960s. I can't remember when Christabel passed away, but like the whole family split up and was so divided by all of this. And that's so unbelievably upsetting to me, but it also made the story so much more interesting to me as well because it truly was 
all in the family, it seems, this movement. Of course, there were a lot of other people that were incredibly important. There were so many other groups that were being formed. I can't wait to talk more about Emily Davison in the future and some of the other women that I mentioned because the other part of this topic that was really, really interesting to me was just how fucking badass these British women were compared to the Americans. Like, they were not afraid to do some really wild and out there tactics things that were just seen as so unladylike and bad behavior or whatever for women at the time to do they were just like no if we need to do this to get in your face to get in the press to get you to recognize what it is that we're fighting for we're willing to do anything and in the case of Emily Davison she was willing to risk her life and did risk her life for this movement and I for one am just so inspired by the people who stay strong in their convictions but who are also willing to learn and adapt and continue to evolve into what the most current modern needs are and I think that's why Sylvia truly is my favorite of the Pankhurst because you know she wasn't as sure of herself she wasn't given the amount of confidence from her mother or her father or the rest of the family she was really the underdog but she was the one person that really stayed true to herself throughout this entire story so that's why I am on team Sylvia Pankhurst all right everyone thank you so much for listening to another episode I would also really, really love to hear any episode suggestions that you have for the future. So if you want to send those to me, please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Don't forget to listen to the new show I've been working on, Still Learning with India Oxenberg, which will be coming out on August 18th. You can also follow that Instagram page at Still Learning the Podcast to get all sorts of updates and things like that. If you want to join Patreon, you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club at the $5 level, or you can join the Feminist Faves level for $7 to get a few bonus extras and so on and so forth by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or clicking on that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. I love and appreciate every single one of you so, so very much. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.